Here it is! From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special edition of the show. Uh, a couple weeks ago, just before I left New Orleans, I, it was a Thursday, just a Thursday night, and I walked around the neighborhood and uh, was able to see live performances by three of my favorite uh, piano players in New Orleans. Just one, two, th- right, just lined up for me, as if at a festival, except it was just an ordinary Thursday night. Well, I'm going to try to recreate uh, a bit of that experience for you today. Uh, live performances by a couple of my favorite New Orleans piano players, uh, as well as uh, some conversation from previous broadcasts. And first up is uh, the great John Cleary. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Um, you don't talk like a New Orleanian. This suggests you come from somewhere else. Either that or I practice an English accent every day. <laughs> you sit and watch Masterpiece <laughs> Theater yeah. when you should be yeah. woodshedding. <laughs> No, I'm from um, London originally, but I moved here as a teenager 30 years ago, which which is mind-boggling when I say it. It doesn't seem like 30 years, but I came here in 1980, just in time to catch the the, kind of the last of all the great R&B guys that were still on good form. You you saw Professor Longhair? No, No. unfortunately, I got here just too late for for Fess. That was a real shame. But I got to see James Booker, who played in my local bar every Tuesday night, and Roosevelt Sykes would hang out in the bar and play in the day. The Honey Dripper. The Honey Dripper. And the (laughs) night I arrived, um, Earl King was playing. So um, I got to see these guys who, for me, were just names on the back of very hard-to-find records, you know. And um, I was very lucky. I ended up actually getting to becoming friends with a bunch of them, and they would call me and ask me to come play. Mm. So I got to to being in awe of them and... and, uh, from a, from a great distance all the way over in Europe, and then the next minute I'm in New Orleans and I'm actually getting hired to do gigs with them. And and this suggests that you didn't experience any of the you're an outsider, you don't belong here, get out of here, uh, that people might think would happen. No, a lot of people ask me about that. And the the best musicians, the guys that were really good at it, didn't care. Well, the people here are very welcoming from the outside. Um, on the condition, as long as you can play. I mean, if you can play, that's the only prerequisite. Mm-hmm. You know, so everything else doesn't really matter. So you must have been in some kind of hog heaven as this all came down. Well, I was, and I think I probably got a lot of the gigs by default, really, because uh, it was amazing to me that at the time I arrived there, it seemed to be very few people who were actually playing what I understood to be New Orleans piano. Um the greatest one of all, James Booker, was working regularly, but he was ignored pretty much. Mm. You know, he played at my local bar every Tuesday night. The Maple Leaf? Off, the Maple Leaf, yeah. And um, the place would often be empty. Mm. Well, you hear those recordings of him at the Maple Leaf, and then you hear... <laughs> yeah, I was there on those nights when they were... I mean, they recorded every week, mm. so I was there all the time. I had a job painting the bar, and often I would come in... Actually, that's how I got my first piano gig, because I was a guitar player. I played guitar as a kid. And that was my real, my main instrument. When I arrived in New Orleans, I got a job painting the bar. And on Tuesday, uh, the, and the deal was we worked whatever hours we wanted. This was the job offer. You can work whatever hours you want. You get free drink while you work. <laughs> <laughs> so stretch half, it out. Yeah, half price drink any <laughs> other time. You get to see all the bands for free. It was great. Man, I was 17 years old in heaven. Mm. Um, but we'd start work very late and very hungover and uh, be getting through 
uh, long after dark. We're paint outside on ladders painting in the dark, two crazy 17-year-olds. And as Booker was getting ready to start playing, I would usually be scrubbing, getting, trying to get all the green paint off myself and cleaning brushes and stuff. And um, on those occasions where he didn't show up or showed up late, they would ask me to play just to keep the, those few customers who actually paid money to come and see him. To keep them in the bar, so they'd they buy some me. drinks. Yeah. yeah, so they get me to play, and I play whatever songs I knew until Booker showed up. Mm. That's how I started doing piano gigs. Wow! But he was the main guy, really. Doctor John was one of my legends, one of my heroes. You know, he didn't live in New Orleans at that time, so it was unusual to see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were other guys who were around, but not. I mean, I really came here thinking that there was a town full of piano players. You know, New Orleans has that reputation. Yeah. Um, so when I did get to play with guys like Earl King and Cato and Jesse Hill and Snooks and people like that, I think um, I got asked back because I actually knew a lot of the material because I'd grown up listening to that stuff. This had been what you'd been listening to in, in, back in England? Yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, an uncle who used to live in New Orleans and he had um, mountains of 45s. Mm. But then every night up at his house was an education. They would start with a Clifton Chenier 45, and then in the process of trying to find a particular song, he'd unearth all these other dusty old 45s, mm. and it would be Clarence Henry and Jiving Gene and the Jokers, <laughs> Professor Longhair, Huey Smith. and uh, It was great, yeah, so I got a thorough grounding in New Orleans R&B. And then would you go 14. home and, and try to play what you just heard? Or Yeah, yeah, I remember trying to play... Big Chief, Big Chief, it took me two hands, it was, and I was playing in the wrong key, it would be like... <laughs> and now it's, you know... <laughs> and then that riff would... A lot of this stuff would take two hands, this riff... That's the, the mm-hmm. classic That's New Orleans... Turnaround, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started doing messing with that stuff when I was about 11 or 12. And then when you came here, did anybody say, young fella, here's how you do that, or you just picked that up as you went along? I just picked it up. There's no laws, there's no rules. And really, in all the, you know, through the history of New Orleans, the guys that made a difference are the ones that threw the rule books out the window. I mean, that riff I was just playing, that Professor Long, I think. There was nothing like that before he <laughs> did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's... He's from New Orleans. There's no doubt that what he plays is from New Orleans, but that, that didn't really have any precedent. And I think you know when you look at the great moments in New Orleans musical history, it's Jelly Roll Morton right up to the Meters. Um, they play the way they play by virtue of being here from New Orleans, but it's not a matter of adhering to an academic um, set of rules that this is how you do it. It's how you feel it. Yes, how you feel it. Yeah, yeah. and you kind of. I think to play New Orleans music, right, you have to come and live in New Orleans. That's the difference. And you soak it up as a process of osmosis. You just breathe, you go to your second line at funerals, you go jump in and step at a Mardi Gras parade, and it just gradually soaks in. That's a high price to pay, isn't it? To be able to play this music, to, to have to live <laughs> yeah, it's here. Tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough, <laughs> tough work. Why don't you uh, show us what you've soaked up for a moment here? Well, I'll play my favorite thing, one that I play on at all the gigs, and um, it's a Professor Long here tune and I heard the fest version and I heard uh, a solo version that Dr. John did of it when I was a, when I was a kid first checking this stuff out and there was one particular riff that, that uh, just took my breath away which is and I'll show you where it comes in so it's Tipitina and Tipitina was a 
tune that was a hit for Fess, and it was uh, one of a long line of tunes that used the same basic chord changes, the fundamental root of which, way back in the day, they used to call the Junkers Blues. Mm. And they used the same chord progression with various sets of lyrics and various arrangements, but always fundamentally the same basic one, four, five changes. And uh, at one point it was called Tina Na, at one point they used it for Lordy Miss Claudy, for Stagger Lee, the Fat Man, mm. um, Champion Jack Dupree way back with Junkers mm -hmm. Blues and even way before that. But it was a very basic fundamental blues. I think early on anybody could pretty much play it. I guess in the early version, early incarnation, it would have been... <laughs> basic stuff and then when Fess got hold of it it turned into more although actually this isn't really true to the Professor Longhead this is more like what Dr. John did with it to make it even funky like this. No syncopation there. <laughs> <laughs> syncopation is the root of all that stuff. You've got to break music down into, into the rhythm and the harmony. And um, New Orleans is part of that world that includes Cuba, uh, Haiti, um, where the way you break up four beats of a bar is turned into advanced mathematics. <laughs> you know, and then in New Orleans... The way they approach um, harmony and the chord progressions and melody, that's very important too. So it's a marriage of those two things. So you have to get those ingredients right.
No kidding. And it doesn't have to be sophisticated necessarily. You can have the grittiest, funkiest, lowest common denominator. But a lot of the great musicians in New Orleans can do that. And then at the drop of a hat, if it's necessary, it can suddenly blossom into this gorgeous, uh, extravagant, delicate... Baroque structure. Yeah, yeah. masterpiece. Yeah. Beautiful, complicated, yeah. sophisticated. You know. Where the hell's the one? Where the hell's the, yeah. the root? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Leaving the audience uh, if they're drunk enough in the dust of... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then yeah. and then you surprise them by saying, "Here it is. It was here all along." <laughs> yeah, um, I think a lot of people first got to know you around the country uh, when you opened for Bonnie Raitt and toured with Bonnie Raitt for a, a good few years. What was that three, four years? I was playing with Bonnie for ten years. Good lord! I know, I know. It flew by really quickly. Yeah. Well, before that, I was playing with Taj Mahal. I mean, I'd played in New Orleans for years, in little clubs in New Orleans, and you can make a living in New Orleans playing without going anywhere else. And um, and you can... A lot of people are quite happy doing that. A lot of people don't want to tour necessarily, and you can make, have a lifelong career here, and no one ever hears of you outside of Orleans Parish. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got a job playing piano for Taj Mahal, who was one of my idols. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lives out in California. And so that was my first experience, really, of touring outside of New Orleans. And that lasted for a few years, and from that uh, I got acquainted with Bonnie, and then Bonnie asked me to come and play with her. So uh, it was very interesting. You know, it's um, such a... Well, fundamentally, the music that is no different. What I do as a piano player is not very different, really. And that was, I think, why she hired me, because mm-hmm. she, you know, she liked that style, obviously. But the... Um, you know, the level of professionalism and uh, the actual business side of it was, was quite eye-opening for me, from being, coming from down here. <laughs> coming, from, coming from New Orleans, just the fact there was a business side <laughs> The business it. side of it, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> so that was really good. Good experience, yeah. Good and she she uh, allowed you to open for her, so the audience didn't see you just as a sideman, right? They saw you she as... She was always very generous in uh, letting me take solos and join her on the vocals, and she would perform songs that I'd written. And then i get to stretch out and play some mandolin and some mm. guitar and some percussion and do some other bits and pieces, too. So, yeah, she was, it was great. Yeah. How long have you been writing songs? I've been writing songs... Um, for as long as I've been playing, really, mm. I guess, yeah. Sort of making things up and, you know. When you're doing the, playing the kind of music I play, you write every time you sit down and play. There are some aspects of music and some musicians who will perform set pieces where essentially note for note is identical from one night to the next. That doesn't really work that way down here. Um, and so you compose and you improvise, so it's all spontaneous. So every time you play, you're composing, really, mm. and writing. Uh, some would say that's a lot of pressure. For me, there would be much more pressure to try and do the same thing twice. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't a classically trained musician. I, learned, I was taught by family members who were musicians. So I learned to play by ear, by trial and error, by listening to records, by sneaking out and seeing bands whenever I was able to. And when did you first start singing? Uh, I've always sung, as long as mm. I can remember. When uh, when I was a little kid, my parents would have parties and there'd be musicians playing, and I would go and sneak, you know, long past my bedtime, and I would be... Um, I'd get up and go and stand by the door and listen, and they'd find out sooner or later that I was there, and I was allowed to stay up on the condition that I sang. 
and Jesse James was the was the song I sang. <laughs> that was the only song I knew. So I'd sing Jesse James, and they'd let me stay up Aww. and listen to the music. So I've been singing since I was about five, yeah. Um, could I ask you to do a, a, a song with a vocal part in it? Sure. Let me play, a, I'm going to play this song that I used to play with Snooks Eaglin, just because it's the first thing that pops into my head. And this is a Benny King tune from back in the day. Every time I kiss somebody new Make believe I'm kissing you I can kick my aching heart Now I know we're still apart, baby Each night seems like a thousand years old. I can't lose these young boy blues. Make me cry when I hear your name. And if I cry, you know I feel so ashamed and I, I can't get my aching heart. Still apart, baby. Now each night is like a thousand years old. I can't lose these young boy blues. Each night feel like a thousand years old. I can't lose these young boys. Cleary, and we'll have more with John. But uh, Henry Butler is another one of my favorite New Orleans piano players, currently residing in Brooklyn, New York. But a few years back, we uh, had an interview conversation, a live session in New Orleans. Uh, and uh, here's a bit of that now. Here's Henry. One of the things that appears on the new record is a piece entitled Bourbon Street Blues. It's actually in the stride style, and we'll play that one. Right. Henry Butler. Thank you.
how did you come to uh, do this for a living? Oh, you mean uh, play piano mm -hmm. for a living? Yeah, or yeah. How did you get play music? Well, <clears throat> it started at a state school for the blind in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I was a student uh, from oh, first grade through my last year of high school. I was volunteered as a musician by a lady by the name of J.S. Catley, and she was too big for me to argue with. <laughs> you were volunteered for it. That's right, yeah. you know, in the Army sense of the mm -hmm, word. Exactly. And so, <clears throat> actually, it took, oh, took quite a while for me to really take to that, because, of course, back in those days, you were considered something other than normal uh, if you uh, took piano lessons. <laughs> <laughs> do I read your meaning correctly? Uh, I think you do. Okay. I think, you know, and, and, and unfortunately, those days uh, did put those labels on you, mm. uh, especially uh, kids, little boys. Uh, and, and little boys can be quite cruel to, uh, toward each other. No kidding. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been something that uh, amazed me. In this country, there's this myth of childhood innocence. And, you know, you just wonder, w didn't these people pay attention when they were children? <laughs> Innocence. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's very funny. Yeah. But, you know, uh, <clears throat> when I really started to show some uh, potential, uh, all of that sort of disappeared. I, I remember the first arrangement that I did was for two trombones and piano, and all the kids said, wow, man, that was great. I really, they wanted to start taking piano lessons. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted all the glory, but they didn't want to do the work. I know the feeling. I, I took piano lessons, but I didn't want to do the work. That's why I'm sitting here and you're sitting there. Well, actually, <laughs> you've done a lot of good stuff. Man. Well, thank I wasn't fishing for that. No, well, I'm just saying right. I had, a, I had, a, I had a, a teacher who just couldn't accept the fact that I thought an hour a day was as much as anyone needed to practice. And uh, I, she was right, and I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, well, I tell you what, I started out doing an hour a day, and the next thing I knew, it was like five and six and mm. seven. That was that was pretty tough. How old were you when you when you did your first uh, gig as a piano player? I was, I tell you, I was fourteen when I started accepting money. Uh, when, I guess at that point, I became a professional. Um, so yeah, I was fourteen. I was mm. in the ninth grade. And um, we had we had in that group uh, four four or five horns, I think, uh, and an occasional bass player. <laughs> and that's where I learned how to use my left hand. Uh, when he didn't when he didn't show up, you mean? No, that's right. Yeah. Well, many times we didn't have we didn't have one to show up, so mm. um, that was one or two people that we knew we could use from time to time, but they were always busy because they were pretty good. And uh, so I learned to use my left hand, and I just basically pounded it out at that time. And right now, uh, my left hand serves me fairly well. Exceedingly well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You you do stuff uh, among other things. You do stuff in unison with with two hands that uh, is is trickier and and more complex than most people can pull off with one. Well, I I teach my students that they should not do anything in their right hand that the left hand can't do, hmm. and I kind of follow that for myself as well. I uh, whether I'm playing 
as a sideman or backing up someone uh, or whether I'm doing it as a soloist. I think it's very important to be able to use the whole piano and not only <clears throat> to play uh, parallel octaves uh, in both hands, but mm-hmm. to be able to do things in contrary motion. That means going in different directions at the same time. Mm. Uh, play for us, if you would, uh, something else from your album or from another album? Certainly. I'd like to do this uh, next piece. Uh, it actually has become one of my signature tunes. It's a piece that I did when I was on Wyndham Hill, uh, and it's the title track of that record. It's entitled Orleans Inspiration.
What is it about New Orleans that, that uh, keeps piano music alive, uh, where piano traditions don't seem to be flourishing elsewhere in the country? I think it's the rhythm. I think it's the rhythm, and I also think that uh, there's more than just piano music that's alive here. You have a sort of a revival of the brass, the brass bands, mm -hmm. and these guys are the straight from the street. Mm -hmm. And it's great. You know, it's, you have the street rhythms, and they're really drawing, whether they know it or not, uh, from sort of the uh, rhythms of the uh, Place du Congo festivals. And uh, <clears throat> they're also drawing from the traditional jazz uh, repertoire uh, and the gospel repertoire, basically the same kind of things that... Uh, the brass bands of, uh, of the uh, back uh, around the turn of the century, the same devices, the same tools that they used, they're just they're just updated today. Mm. Uh, they're using, in many cases, popular music of the day, with the same traditional jazz rhythms, with the same uh, uh, with the traditional jazz rhythms integrated with funk sometimes. Uh, and and they, and, they, and they've found a way to blend them very well. I mean, they've done it very well. Yeah, it's just amazing that in a, I've, I've said this before, but that the uh, the guitar has taken over everywhere else except here, where it's, you know there's still room for horns and piano and all sorts of other things. Well, New Orleans has its own subculture, and, and in most cases, when a city has its own subculture, it's hard for other things to get in. It's just like the cuisine here. It's like the food cuisine. Uh, most of the restaurants in New Orleans uh, serves some kind of Creole or Cajun cuisine. It's modified in this way or that mm. way. Um, but it doesn't matter what, even even when you go to some of the Japanese restaurants. <laughs> it's amazing. Creole Japanese? Yeah, it's amazing. It, obviously, they don't say that, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's probably a little more... Spicy than some of the Japanese restaurants that you might find in Houston or, or even Los Angeles. Mm. Um, and um, it's it's hard for other it's hard for other ethnic restaurants to get in here. I mean, there are a few Vietnam, Vietnamese places, a few Thai, Ch Chinese, mm. that kind of thing. Same thing is is happening with music. Uh, you get. Well, you get a lot of straight-ahead jazz in because there are a lot of straight-ahead jazz musicians in New Orleans. Uh, but there are not that many straight-ahead jazz outlets mm. for playing that music here. And unfortunately, uh, New Orleans misses, uh, well, a lot of the shows, say, uh, uh, put on by straight-ahead musicians don't come into New Orleans except during the time of, say, the jazz festival. And occasionally the House of Blues may bring somebody in. But by and large, and mostly you get uh, street music uh, with the New Orleans influence, uh, New Orleans funk, uh, and blues with New Orleans influence. Mm. It's a pretty good diet, though. Oh, uh, look, <laughs> you know, I'm not complaining. Yeah, And, of course... I, I have the good fortune of living in cities that uh, where jazz flourished, so I may not need it as much as some of the other people here might. 
Uh, I mean, plus I can practice. <laughs> Great. Do one more for us, if oh, you would. Oh, certainly. This piece is entitled, uh, Got My Eyes on You. This is the show. Our guest is uh, John Cleary. And I have to ask you an, a rude question. Um, I'm used to, because of uh, family and other, and, and just following, you know, from Tom Jones onward, the fact that Welsh people can sing soulfully and uh, occasionally <laughs> Scott. How does a, a, normally you don't connect the words English and soulful. <laughs> well, you know. Or am I wrong? Well, my family's all Irish back in the ah, day. I so see. maybe that maybe it was the Celtic blood. Yeah, that's just part it's the of Celtic it. thing, of course. <laughs> so, um, but you know that uh, whole soulful thing. It doesn't matter where you're from, really. Some, you know, you can find uh, soulful music anywhere you go if you look hard enough mm. for it. And I was lucky because I grew up in a family of soulful musicians. Now, you, you, I know from talking to you and hanging with you that you're a, a, a total uh, Johnny Guitar Watson uh, maniac. Um, yeah, I love Johnny Watson. But was that something that you, you were into at the time? Uh, or or who, was, who was the reigning funk kings of England when you were there? Or were there such a thing? Well, I left England when I was... Was I it I hot chocolate? 17. <laughs> God. <laughs> I mean... Uh, you know, I was too young, really, for the kind of the, to to be into the soul thing when it was happening. Mm. 
1973 was when a lot of great soul records were made, and I was 11 years old. Ah, yeah. So the stuff that my peers were listening to was whatever was on top of the pops that week, which mm. was usually Gary Glitter's glam rock. You know, and then the Sex Pistols came along, and that was pretty mind-blowing. But when you go to the gigs I could go and see as a kid were punk rock gigs, we'd mm. see the, you know, all the punk bands. But at that time in England, every time you, when you went to a punk gig, there was always a reggae band on the bill. There was, uh -huh. would be a, one, a punk band and a reggae band. So I got to see all these great Jamaican bands. So that was our kind of soul music in England, if you like. The stuff we had access to was Jamaican music. Mm. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, so I got to see, man, in the late 70s, mm -hmm. got to see great, well, you know, Mighty Diamonds, Culture, mm. Gladiators, Steel Pulse, Azrael, <sighs> Matumbi, all the, all the English reggae stuff with Dennis Bavel. Um so that was kind of the, the soul stuff. And mm. then, I, you know, I was listening to New Orleans R&B, and that really was the stuff that, that got me. I loved just that. <laughs> oh, you know. That was the stuff that, that really pressed all my buttons. <laughs> Um, and then after moving here and learning a little bit more and getting to play with guys like Walter Washington and Johnny Adams and playing in a lot of the little black bars in New Orleans and hearing and just, you know, being a funk detective and checking out the jukeboxes and all of a sudden it's like, wow, Johnny Taylor, Little Milton, mm. Tyrone Davis, that... And you know that stuff really. That was the stuff that really got me. Tyrone, can I change my mind, Davis? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that then really, that that got me pretty hard. Mm. The, you know, the real good old Southern soul music. So then you form a band at one point, and uh, I, I, I'd been aware of you as a player and as a performer, but um, when when this band broke on the New Orleans scene, I think it 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 knocked a lot of people for a, a major loop. It was the the funkiest stuff that hmm. I'd heard yeah. since you know since the original Meters had fled the scene. Um, how'd you put that band together? How'd you come up with the name? And 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 it's all it was also New Orleans is a great music town. It's not always a great record making town. That was that that John Cleary and the Absolute Monster Gentleman record is. A great sounding record. It's a real Thank record. You. Yeah. Well, well, I um, the first time I put a band together in New Orleans was after having lived here for a couple of years. I lived here for two years and just looked and learnt and, and listened a lot. And then I went back to England. I had to leave and go back. And that was when I first got my experience at hiring musicians, hustling gigs, plugging in PA systems, <laughs> getting paid at the end of the night. The glamour stuff. Yeah, and all that. So, yeah, nuts and bolts of, uh, of the trade, really, just being a working musician. So I felt having done that when I, got, when I then came back to New Orleans, that I was then um, equipped to, to kind of do it and do it right. Prior to that, I didn't. I spent most of my time just listening, mm. soaking it up and shedding. I had a piano in the house. I moved to play for hours every day. And then the first band I put together, you know, I was quite cheeky. I would call the best players in town. So the very first band I put together in New Orleans had George Porter on bass, Walter Washington on guitar, mm. Kenneth Blevins on drums. They were great. And I, and I would always hire the baddest musicians because that's you know that's what you do if you're gonna get, if you're gonna want if you want to sound good surround yourself <laughs> with the best cat. <laughs> so I got to play with guys from you know the meters mm -hmm. from George Porter and then 
Fats Domino's rhythm section. I mm. hire them for little. And these are just little gigs, and you know, as I say, it was a bit cheeky of me. But I realised, man, they're all musicians. They all need gigs. They're happy. And if you can, you know, the first gig, if they dig it, then they don't mind you calling them back. And they always <laughs> dug it because mm. I was playing the old stuff that they grew up with. So I, I was hiring guys that were sort of twenty or thirty years older than me, but I was calling out songs that they recognised from when they were teenagers because that's kind of what I grew up listening to. And so I got spoiled, you know, all these great musicians. But I found that um, as much as I loved doing the old obscure New Orleans standards and Little Willie John tunes, these songs that I could call without having to have rehearsals, knowing that these guys would know him, mm -hmm. be able to jump in and fall straight in. Um, at the same time, I was writing songs and I wasn't able to play them because I needed to have guys that would learn these songs. They'd never heard those before, so, so it was a different kettle of fish altogether. So around that time, I put together a band with um, some musicians that I'd become friends with who were in a gospel band called The Friendly Travellers. And I sort of broke with the tradition and for Jazz Fest one year, instead of using the old cats, the session players, I used these guys who, whose experience was really playing coffee, coffee bars and playing in church, not playing festivals and nightclubs and all mm -hmm. that. But uh, they were great players and nice guys, and they were and were agreeable to to getting together and working, rehearsing, and learning the stuff. So that's uh, the band I put together, and we needed a name for the band. And around that time, Johnny Guitar Watson came out of retirement and came to perform in New Orleans. And it's hard to come up with a good name for a band, and all your you know, ask all your friends for ideas, and everyone comes up with stupid ideas or double entendre. You know, it soon, soon degenerates into the silliest name anyone could think of. But Johnny Watson introduced one of the musicians on the band as an absolute monster gentleman, and I thought, ah, oh, that's it, that's the name, the absolute monster gentleman. So it came from Johnny Guitar so Watson. Johnny Guitar Watson, yeah, he wow. deserves the credit. Mm. So that was the band, John Clear and the Absolute Monster Gentleman. And yeah. that band was together for, and it broke up. Uh, you... Well, for about 10 years, mm. and um, it's not really broken up. We'll still be doing gigs here and there. Mm. But um, the challenge is to try and have as broad a musical diet as possible, you know, and so it's fun to to have the luxury here of playing with as many great musicians as you can. And so recently I've been doing trio gigs with just a different timbre, a different texture of music. So it's more acoustic piano with upright bass, mm -hmm. as opposed to the Monster Gents thing, which is kind of electric R&B and funk. And you've also been doing solo gigs to my great delight as well. I've been doing some solo gigs. I used to do a lot of solo gigs back in the day, but I'm kind of digging it now, yeah. It's, uh, in, you know I, I bow to no one in my admiration for that band, but, uh, you know... I'll always come here. You play solo. Could you? Could you do something else for us right now? Sure, sure. I play. I know what I'll do. I'll play you a blues. This is um, Port Street blues. I used to live on Port Street, and this funky old falling down house, uh, about a hundred yards from the Mississippi River, in the old part of town of New Orleans. And this one, uh, I had to. I lived there for about fifteen years. It's a beautiful old place, man. It was great. And so when I'd be away on tour, I'd always get homesick for New Orleans. And this one, this is all about uh, missing New Orleans, and it's called Port Street Blues. Side check. 
Krill shotgun little yard out back. Cool breezing, wriggle easing, blowing through my banana trees, y'all. And rusty freight ship drifting in from an ocean far away. Cast long shadows on my back porch at the sad time of day. I'm just trying to tell y'all about a feeling I can't lose. I'm a long way from home. Oh, now, Lord, I got the Pond Street Blues. yourself <laughs> thank sure. you so much for sharing your time and your uh, your talent with us thank you for having me it's great great to be able to do this
Ladies and gentlemen, this week's Le Show was uh, from the Le Show archive. Sadly, Henry Butler passed away four years ago. But happily, John Cleary is still with us and uh, frequently touring around the United States and Europe. That's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same radio stations. And for those of you using your own audio devices, whenever you want it. And it would be just like a former U.S. president not having a public dinner with a white nationalist. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh show chapeau to the San Diego desk to John Fishback for engineering the interviews and performances to Pam Halstead all for their help with today's program the email address for this program your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts before you forget they make great puzzling Christmas gifts and the playlist of the music heard on this program, all at harryshearer.com. And am I still on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer? Only one way to find out for sure. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.